Welcome to episode 184 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Monday 26th of March 2018. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. Wearing a beacon while you're riding a bike is one more element of shifting the blame onto the cyclist rather than expecting drivers to do what they need to do, which is pay attention to what's happening on the road in front of them. This measure, if it's introduced, will cause even fewer people to cycle, leading to more obesity, more congestion and more pollution. It's simply mad, bad and stupid. That was the voice of John Kirk, a Birmingham UK cycle campaigner, and he was referring to what I'm now going to bill as Beacongate the potentially compulsory fitting of transponders to bicycles, cyclists, pedestrians, and perhaps even animals, so that the smart motor vehicles of the near future can spot us and them. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed of BikeBiz.com, and later in the show, I'll be talking with historian Peter Norton to find out what autonomous cars have in common with the creation of the concept of jaywalking in the 1920s and 1930s, and why smart cars aren't apparently as smart as they've been billed. Alien Hertzberg of Tempe, Arizona, was killed recently by a driverless Uber car, with neither the operator nor the car's high-tech sensors spotting that she was crossing the road. That driverless cars aren't so good at spotting cyclists and pedestrians has got to be worrying, and it highlights why the automotive industry is so keen on chipping everything. LiDAR, radar and cameras can only get the driverless car so far. What's needed for absolute accuracy is radio wave identification of everything, other cars, inanimate objects such as lampposts, and of interest to us, cyclists. And when everything is chipped, all of the sensors talk to each other. They know each other's whereabouts. A great safety benefit, we've been told. But as we've seen with the recent Facebook debacle, there are obvious privacy concerns we need to consider. And if our use of the roads is going to require the fitting of transponders or the use of keep-me-safe smartphone apps, then what happens to those who don't get a transponder or don't own smartphones? And what happens when our iPhone battery runs out mid-ride? What do we do? Just get off? Get off the road? Where do we go? And what about animals? Should they all be chipped? On this front, here's former BBC reporter Simon Willis, who lives and cycles in the Scottish Highlands. If they're going to bring self-driving cars to the northwest highlands of Scotland, they're really going to have to sort out this problem of things straying out on the road because we have these sheep and they graze right by the verges of the roads. It's traditional here in the northwest highlands. And if anything that might step out is going to need some kind of a beacon, uh, then good luck persuading the crofters to fit beacons to, to all their stock. And as for who's going to fit them to the wild deer that come down occasionally, that's anyone's guess. Perhaps there'll be just some places where self-driving cars can't go. American attorney Jeffy Halfon raises a different issue. My name is Jesse Halfon and I'm a products liability lawyer. And one of the things that you often see in automotive negligence cases is uh, defendants or the auto manufacturer Uh, attempting to attribute contributory or comparative negligence to drivers, passengers, or other uh, persons injured in an accident. And where you see this most prominently is that many states have, by statute, a law stating that anyone who is required by law to wear a seatbelt, who is not wearing a seatbelt at the time of an accident, uh, is forced to essentially uh, forfeit 50% of the Uh, damages in an automotive negligence case. Uh, Now, I do not see 
uh, at any point in the near future, any type of law that would require uh, beacons for cyclists in a connected environment. I think that would be uh, decades away uh, if it ever happened. But even if it wasn't required by law, uh, social expectations in these areas is still critical to um, you know the legal framework and the policy environment. And it's critical that when we are uh, determining what our policies are going to be, that pedestrians and cyclists are prioritized and that the automotive network uh, is built around the, the, the entire community uh, uh, with those priorities in mind. Clearly, people around the world are concerned about the issues raised by Beacongate. And it all kicked off from a story on bikebiz.com in which I reported on a talk given at the Geneva Motor Show by Manuel Marsilio, the general manager of the Brussels-based Kanibi, or Confederation for the European Bicycle Industry. He also represents the World Bicycle Industry Association. So what he said to the automotive and telecoms experts at the motor show could have ramifications globally. He said, Bicycles will definitely have to communicate with the other vehicles, as well as with infrastructure. Marsolio told the Connected Car Symposium this. The bicycle industry deems that the proper deployment of harmonised connected services is the key to this objective, and agrees that interoperability is a must. It is unacceptable that road users nowadays could die on roads because vehicles cannot communicate with each other due to non-interoperable communication technologies. He also said that boosting user uptake requires an appropriate regulatory environment. Marcelio turned down a request to be interviewed for this show, but his words pricked the ears of historian Peter Norton of America. Peter is the author of Fighting Traffic, which documents how the automotive industry invented the concept of jaywalking in order to redefine that streets for cars, not pedestrians. I talked to Peter via Skype to hotel room phone connection. So, Peter, you are the author of the seminal, the very, very famous, the, the frequently mentioned in the media book, Fighting Traffic, which, well, I'm going to, in, in a second, I'm going to let you... Uh, paraphrase uh, that book. Give me the the back cover blurb uh, kind of thing from where you are right now. But I would also like you to somehow, in your answer, also bring it up to date in the fact that the 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 current issue which we we are wrestling with, which is the uh, potentially asking people pedestrians, animals, cyclists, to wear some form of electronic identification so they don't get killed is, yeah. is in the mainstream. So, so tell us what your book was about and why I'm talking to you. Why is that pertinent to today? Okay, well, first, uh, you flatter me. Those words are a delight to hear from a celebrated author of worldwide significance. The book is about um, how automobiles came to dominate American cities, dominate them in terms of traffic, geography, economy, the physical appearance of the city, the energy intensiveness of the city. And it's a really a, re a reply, a rejoinder to the prevailing explanations, which are all around us, that this was for a lot of reasons, but mainly because this is what people preferred. So this is the version we grow up with. We, we preferred it this way. It's American culture. It's, it's consumer culture. It's demand-driven. And I wasn't satisfied with that explanation, uh, and I checked, and I just combed through enormous quantities of old documents, newspapers, and so on, and it appeared to me very clear, uh, really quite certain, that a century ago, there was no confidence whatsoever among the people who wanted to sell cars, the car makers, but also the automobile clubs, the automobile dealers, and all the associated industry groups. There was no confidence among them that they had 
any friend in in uh, consumer demand, at least not within cities. They they certainly did in the countryside and in rural areas, but in the city, people got around pretty well on on streetcars, on foot, on bicycles, and not only that, but the uh, automobile got a very bad reputation because. People thought of streets as places to walk in, and cars naturally then ended up hitting them, and there were a lot of fatalities and casualties, and they were crowding the streets too. So actually there was a backlash against cars, uh, in the you know, especially around 1920, and it took a really concerted effort with a multi-level strategy that included a legal strategy, an engineering strategy, a public relations strategy, to get the car some kind of priority on city streets. And and that priority was largely successful with a lot of continued antipathy by about 1930. And I think this story is a current story in the sense that that struggle, and the book is called Fighting Traffic because I think of these things as struggles. They're not trends with, you know, a single factor driving the trend like demand for cars they're they're competitions they're struggles it's it's like it's like uh, a battle for survival in a in a darwinian world of competing street users and we still have that world right now um the battle changes the you know the the front lines move back and forth but the battle never went away and today we're seeing efforts that are the technology is di- totally different, but the agendas and some of the strategies uh, and the interests at stake are very much the same. And, and what I mean by that is, for example, if you want a bike, uh, if you want a bicycle on a city street, how are you going to make that work for you? And what are we going to do to make sure that not too many cyclists get hit, injured, or killed? Same thing with pedestrians. And of course, we have got a lot of choices, but one of the one that's one of those that's getting the most play right now, um, both in terms of protecting vehicle occupants and uh, bicycle riders and pedestrians, is making them all interconnected, um, which is interesting because, yes, that would help um, car drivers know where bicyclists are. They would pick up some sort of signal emitted from the bike. It would also, though, I think, continue the, the prioritization of automobiles over bikes. It would continue to subordinate bicyclists' needs to the needs of motorists. They would continue to be no good justification for that when you consider that the cyclists take up less space and are much more energy efficient, much more environmentally friendly, and much more conducive to public health. Um, and I think what we're seeing is new technology inheriting old models of who gets priority in the street. And that's sad because the new technology could actually be making it easier to pick the alternatives we prefer uh, instead of perpetuating the alternatives we've inherited. And I think there's a real irony in the fact that state-of-the-art 2018 electronics data technology is being enlisted right now to preserve a model of traffic engineering that's completely a 20th century production uh, creation. So it's a shame because, you know, technology is supposed to give us new choices, but instead it's just accelerating us along the uh, same path of automobile domination, as far as I can tell. Do you think that Manuel... Marcelio, who is the uh, the bike industry, the bike industry organization boss at the center of this. Well, I'll call it a storm because I'm a journalist and I want to do that sort of thing. Uh, so at the center of this storm, do you think he should be talking to the automotive interest, to, to what in your book you call motordom? And, and to add to that, there's also the, the IT interests and the, the telecommunication interest. Do you think the bike industry w- will get anything out of this? Uh, the bike industry, if you put it like that, very probably could get a lot out of it. Um, I think that's 
a very different question from asking would bicyclists get uh, a lot out of it. And the reason I, I put it that way is that there's some pretty strong indications that to the tech industry, people trying to get around are an opportunity to collect valuable data from them and to collect much more data than they can collect from you when you're just on your phone or on your laptop. And I think that's very important because when that starts to happen, not only will the cyclist and the car occupant too become an unpaid data source for data collectors, which is troubling, but I think perhaps even more troubling than that is the fact that once you're the occupant of a car or the rider of a bicyclist and the people who are making that happen are more interested in the data they can collect from you than from your mobility experience, then that means they're now thinking of their customer more as the data collector than as the person getting around. And that, to me, has some very troubling implications. I I can illustrate that with an example from the automated vehicle developments and they may they may be something very analogous now going on with the bicyclists so intel the chip manufacturer which wants to be a leader in av automated vehicle technology is saying uh to its investors and to its industry partners that people are worth three thousand times more in terms of the data you can collect collect from them when they're in an, an automated or autonomous vehicle than when they're on their phone or laptop. And they're celebrating this fact as an inducement to try to develop the automated vehicles further. And not only that, but Intel says they're putting $250 million into developing these things. And you have to recognize that when they develop them, if they're right about people being much more valuable in a car than out of it, then and the customer is the data collector more than the car occupant, that means the incentive is on to keep you in your car more. And if they put $250 million into developing this future, then they will have some kind of influence on how that future plays out. So AVs certainly could be a great supplement to transit, perhaps a supplement to cycling, uh, a, a mobility service for people whose choices are, are constrained in various ways. Uh, it could be a supplement to a people-friendly, greener, more compact, more sustainable, and perhaps more enjoyable city. But it won't be that if the people who give us the autonomous vehicle future want us in our cars. And I fear that that Intel statement, and there are many others that are very similar to it elsewhere in in the car industry, is a signal that we're not getting that people-friendly future. And, And if it goes to bikes as well, then that means the bike industry may have that conflict in its perception of who its customer is. Maybe the bike industry is seeing that there's greater let's say, business opportunity in cultivating a, a, its, uh, the data collectors as its new customers, it would certainly not necessarily be a bad thing for the cyclist because if the goal becomes to keep you on your cycle more so as to harvest more data from you, maybe that will inadvertently work to the benefit of the bicyclist because that would mean inviting bike-friendly infrastructure and rules would be conducive to this data collection business model. But on the other hand, uh, those two interests don't necessarily line up. I don't think they line up with cars and city design at all. And it's also just perhaps troubling that a bike that you thought you were buying because you like to be in charge of your own life uh, is actually a means to an end for the people who are selling it to you. So Trek... Is it, it's pretty much the only company that I know of at the moment that's thinking of installing these things, probably for high-end models to begin with. So the, Trek knows their customer. It's a high-end customer. Um, it's a customer who clearly uh, values their safety, and as, as do everybody, but they, they, they are very aware of their vulnerability on the road. 
anything that any small thing that they can use to protect themselves on the road they may wish to avail themselves of so if trek says well we're we're developing this product with uh, tome software and it will protect you then clearly trek customers may want to buy into that however would it not be the case that this technology only really works for trek or for anybody else is if it's not just trek customers who have this tech it's everybody in the world has this tech because this this doesn't actually work unless everybody is so equipped because you can't just have one person with the beacon and then a thousand people without it because it it, it doesn't make sense you're going to have a thousand people able to wander around the roads with gay abandon and only one person who is going to flash the the lights on the car so given that's the case it becomes clear that yes you can say you can provide this technology but at the end of the day it's not a commercial thing for one company everybody's got to have this technology and it's got to be done at at a whole population level yeah well i mean you've you've raised important complications in your in your question right there very well um certainly if customers want to pay for the technology which i mean obviously in cars it's very expensive at first uh, in bikes it might be much cheaper but if there is a cost aspect to this, we may have an equity aspect that comes along with that, with the more protected population perhaps being the Trek high-end bike purchasers. Um, you know, you could argue that people can ought to be able to get what they are willing to pay for, and, and, and I'm not going to quarrel with that. I do think, though, that the safety benefit, even assuming wide implementation which is, I think, what was envisioned by the general manager of the European Bicycle Industry Group. Um, Even if you can achieve that wide implementation, there are some really troubling implications to that approach to safety. I want to begin by admitting that the status quo is troubling, so saying that this alternative is troubling doesn't necessarily damn it. (laughs) So the status quo is, is disturbing, but... We have seen other ways to do this, right? So, for example, in the Netherlands, you're not that likely to be injured or killed by a car because the car drivers, primarily because the car drivers expect cyclists everywhere, also because they have a shared space model on a lot of their streets, and and this comes with a low speed limit for the cars. Um, They have a legal liability framework that, recognizes the cyclist's uh, complete justification for being in the street. Um, And it's not like I'm saying every country should adopt that mentality. I mean, I would favor it personally, but, you know, that's up to the people. But what I am trying to suggest is that you could actually get farther from that angle you could you could exacerbate the problems we have elsewhere where drivers for example often don't even think to look for a cyclist because if automated systems uh, become the signal for where a cyclist is you as a driver may feel like you're entitled to drive faster now it may easily become an excuse for maintaining higher speed limits uh, the signal may become an excuse for your own alertness and attentiveness as a driver, even if you can show that that comes out even in the end. In other words, the signal and some sort of automated signal from the car, assuming all the bikes are equipped and all the cars are equipped, would have uh, an actual safety benefit. It would have, I think, a, um, a quality of life cost for the cyclist because that whole arrangement would be there to enable cars to retain their priority Mm. on the street. I also think the data collection models will have a tendency to to protect automobile domination simply because of the fact that the car will be such a lucrative data source for the data collectors that they will benefit from continued automobile domination. There's a really interesting analogy that's being drawn in the 
AV industry and among the tech companies in particular uh, interested in making autonomous and automated vehicles, the analogy they're making is they're saying, and, I'm, and this is their, their metaphor, they're saying data is the new oil, which is really interesting because, of course, it has a couple of parallels. One is the oil industry boomed, and although the oil industry was not selling any cars, it, of course, uh, its, its business thrived on automobile dependency. And so there's, a, there's that analogy. In other words, if data is the new oil, then like the oil industry, the data or tech industry becomes interested in keeping people in their cars, mm-hmm. right? And you don't have to guess that the oil industry wanted to keep people in their cars. I've seen enough of their public relations, their marketing from the 20th century, and their lobbying, their political lobbying in the 20th century, that it was very clear that they wanted uh, uh, automobile dependency, even though they weren't selling any cars, just because of the the oil uh, value that came from car dependency. But there's a second analogy with, between data and oil that actually Intel made even more explicitly, and that I think is even more disturbing. In other words, a high-tech car, and perhaps to some extent a high-tech bike, becomes an oil well for data collectors, metaphorically, in other words, a source of a lot of money. And what Intel is doing, in effect, is saying, our customers, the data collectors, and the people in the autonomous vehicles are our oil well. We're going to drill value out of them mm-hmm. until we've completed it. And it, to me, it's shocking that Intel is using this metaphor quite gleefully because it works with investors and it works with mm-hmm. industry partners. But, you know, it, my guess is people just don't know yet that, that um, when they're thinking about sitting in an autonomous vehicle, the people who are providing that autonomous vehicle aren't thinking of maximizing their mobility experience so that they don't have to be in cars too much or or maximizing it such that being in a car becomes their best part of their day. They're interested in maximizing data extraction, and they say you're 3,000 times more valuable to them than, mm. than you or me are on the phone right now. I fear that this uh, statement from the industry group that you reported on, which... I found jaw-dropping, suggests that there may be a similar shift in who the bike industry is thinking of as their customers. I don't think it's happening yet, but uh, that statement signifies that it may be coming. At this point, I'm going to butt in and take us to a commercial break. Take us away, David. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a longtime loyal advertiser. We're glad to have them back again, of course, in 2017. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices and what really sets them apart because of course there's lots of online retailers out there but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support when you call and you've got a question about something you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors and these are cyclists i've been there i've seen it these folks this is something we'll talk about in today's show but these are folks who who ride their bikes to and from work these are folks who ride at lunch who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so, you know, that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. Now talking about great deals, it is time for Jensen USA's annual bike sale, their 2017 annual bike sale. If, if you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Because now it's spring and the sun is shining and the birds are chirping and it's time to get back out on your bike. Check out Jensen USA's annual bike sale and you will not be disappointed. They always have great deals on complete bikes. I mean, I'll just give you an example. I'm looking at their website. A 2016 Orbea Occam TRM30, normally $3,999, now just $2,699. What are you waiting for? 
It's a great bike from a great brand at a great price. Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support, and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Thanks, David. And here's the rest of today's interview with Peter Norton, the Associate Professor for History at the Center for Transportation Studies at the University of Virginia. Using your your knowledge of of the the lobbying groups which you mentioned uh, a few seconds ago, and how they succeeded, so how Motordom succeeded, and your knowledge of who were they were up against, which was a, a dimorphous, uh, no real lobbying groups because it's basically just pedestrians, which which don't well, rarely have any effective lobbying group because we are all pedestrians. Um, so, using that knowledge of that history. What can people do today to actually try and uh, not have history repeat itself? So how can we guarantee that the rights that we, the the lesser rights we may have now, but in the future might be even even more reduced rights? How can we protect those rights? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You you use the word guarantee, and and you know there will be no guarantees here about how this will, will play out, but there certainly are some... Uh, we can learn a lot from that quite successful strategy by motordom, which was their their old word for their associated industries, the whole spectrum of auto-related industries. We can learn from that great success story. And the fact that they were so successful in, in changing our perceptions of who's who the street's for, who gets priority, who's to blame in the event of a pedestrian getting killed and so on, is at least an encouragement that these things can change. They've changed before, and they can change again. Um, so I see analogous strategies to those old strategies. Uh, I also see some new ones. Here's one that is like a new version of an old one. I've noticed that a lot of the depictions of this dreamy, car-dependent future that's being presented to us are being characterized as quote, data-driven, unquote. It's the new thing to call your plans if you want to claim that that they are uh, beyond reproach because they're based on enormous quantities of data. And yeah, the quantities of data are always going up, but the quantity of data, any quantity of data, no matter how big, doesn't change the fact that what people value differs. So you can't use any quantity of data in the world to sort of definitively settle what the ideal city for everybody is because people have different ideas about what the ideal city is. So I think we have to go back to a recognition that there are no definitive, final, uh, impartial, objective, pure solutions, even though we're constantly being presented with so-called data-driven solutions. Um, so I, I would urge people to question that word data-driven. And um, and it's, it's a version of older terms that were used in the 20th century to try to present auto industry motordom's agendas as if they were research, as if they were unassailable science. Motordom was very good in the U.S. beginning in the 1920s at really getting direct control over engineering standards, getting direct control over many of the design standards, the speed standards, the lane width designs, um, the engineering models, the engineering priorities, such that, and, and they even directly trained the first couple of generations of traffic and highway engineers, such that it was very easy to for them to make their car-dependent plans appear to be highly rational and somewhat intimidating to someone who isn't trained in the field. Well, you don't need to be trained in traffic engineering to, to recognize an, an awful street that's eight lanes wide and cars going 50 miles an hour right through a city and no one can cross the street. It doesn't take training and expertise to recognize that that's a miserable experience for most of the people who are not in the car 
and even for a lot of the people who are, are in the car, it's not, not a, a pleasant experience to be there um, at all either. Um, I would... There's some success stories that I think are inspiring. I mean, one that's that's justifiably gotten a lot of attention is the campaign in the Netherlands in the 1970s to make streets safe for children again. Stop the Kindermort. Uh, there was, like in the U.S., uh, a generation or two earlier, there were there were a lot of cars running around and a lot of people, including children, getting injured and killed. And it led Dutch people to refuse to accept the the pills of the tranquilizing pills of expert reassurance anymore, and to say, "No, we are the citizens of this country. You, the engineers, you, the policymakers, you don't get to tell us what we value. We tell you." So I guess um, that leads me to suggest that there's it's very important to f- stop assuming that data is definitive and to recognize that values are, uh, are, are sort of self-justifying in the sense that um, if people want a livable city and the engineering uh, algorithms conclude that that doesn't make sense from a traffic point of view, well, in a free country, in a democracy, the people should prevail anyway. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's actually an interesting deployment of an of a motordom strategy. So the motordom, one of the motordom strategies, one of the first was to claim, well, car domination makes good sense. It's you know good good business and good for the whole country. But that was backfiring uh, in the late 1950s and early 1960s in the U.S. When everybody today thinks that, or most people today think in the U.S. at that time, everybody loved their cars. If you go back and you look at the primary sources, the historic documents, that is not at all true. A lot of people did, and a lot of people were very deeply disturbed. And that critique, which was coming because highways were starting to demolish cities to move suburbanites into neighborhoods where people used to live, and now they just park, that critique became so threatening to motordom that they recognize that this rational strategy, the strategy that claims we are the rational solution, the modern solution, uh, the economic growth solution, that that wasn't working well enough. And they tried the reverse strategy, and the reverse strategy was to say, hang on, we're a free country and we're a car culture, and that means that if Americans love their cars, then a few pointy-headed intellectual finger-waggers don't get to stand in the way of what the majority want. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is called the love affair with the automobile thesis, which most people today still think was a homegrown grassroots cultural idea. It was uh, an invention. It was certainly an invention that resonated with the culture effectively, but it was the term was an invention, and the term was meant to make the car proof from the critics who had all of these demonstrable, factual data points to argue against it. Well, it's possible to use that technique the other way and point out and celebrate how much people love being able to bike without feeling menaced by cars all the time, how much uh, it, how pleasant it is to be on a sidewalk that's wide with tables and benches and restaurants, uh, how much retailers enjoy the business that comes with these things. In other words, we can start celebrating uh, people's love affair with their cities, perhaps, or, or something along those lines. And I think that there are certainly versions of this kind of thing. Peter, but isn't uh, it the case that people want all of those things and the cars? But it's actually got yeah. to be... It's, it's an either-or thing here. You either have the wide sidewalks, the lots of leafy places for going bicycling... And uh, less room for cars, but you can't have yeah. you can't have you can't, everybody can't have everything they want. Absolutely right, and uh, I th- I think it's pretty clear that um, well I'll, I'll start it out this way. I I can still find right up to now well trained transportation engineers pro- professing to know 
what at least American travelers prefer, and they will say with absolute confidence and certainty that they prefer to drive. And then if they feel like they have to offer any evidence for this apparently self-evident truth, they'll start citing some data. And the data will say something like, oh, well, on the typical commute, 95% are in a car alone, and, and, uh, and, you know, this is way ahead of all of the alternatives, and most trips are in cars, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, it, it doesn't take an education beyond the sixth grade to recognize that we learn nothing at all about what people prefer when we don't give them a good choice. You know, mm-hmm. if you give person, uh, people a choice between, you know, wilted lettuce and nice, uh, you know, uh, apples, and they choose the apples, we don't know if they hate lettuce. We have to offer them comparable alternatives. In, in much of the world, uh, U.S. is second to none in this respect. In much of the world, people simply don't have good choices. So, yes, I agree with you. People do want their car. They're going to want to keep it. Even after they, you give them alternatives, they still want to get keep it because we've had generations growing up with this car dependency. We've certainly seen interest in automobile ownership declining with younger generations, although that appears likely to have as much to do with the terrible employment market for young people mm-hmm. as with uh, actual preferences about cars. But as the alternatives get better, concomitant to making the alternatives better is necessarily making driving a little harder, not because necessarily because you intentionally make it harder, which is certainly one way to do it, it's a way that will certainly be very divisive and controversial. But even if your sole intention is to make the bus service better, to make perhaps the light rail service better, to make bicycling easier, those very efforts will, of course, start to increase the competition with street space with the car. And when that happens, you're going to have, you know, it's going to be less pleasant to drive. Now, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm in Florida right now, and I had to drive up here from the airport, and I was with a native Floridian on the trip, and he said, um, and, and we're talking now about something like 10 lanes of dense, thick highway traffic, monstrous. And I asked him about it, and they were, there were no toll lanes. It was 10 free lanes, free to the driver anyway, obviously fantastically expensive. But he said they are a- adding um, hot lanes, uh, lanes where you know you you pay a, a little electronic fee to use use the lane. And I said, "Did you say adding?" And he said, "Yes, adding." In other words, you cannot take a lane away and redesignate it a hot lane mm. for the reason you said, which is people want to keep their cars, so they're going to add this thing. And it's it's so bizarre in a way to try to wean people it'd be like weaning people off of cigarettes by giving them candy and then buying them just as many cigarettes as they had before so now they're on candy and cigarettes <laughs> you know so it's it's uh, I, i'm not so i, I want to be the first to agree this is not easy <laughs> not at all so before we're talking quite a while before you, you were mentioning about how uh, motordom was in effect in charge of the standards and of the training and of of how how the the the, the paraphernalia that surrounds uh, the activity of motoring was eventually conducted. So that's something that is clearly happening today for this new uh, tech heavy. Uh, part of motoring where all the standards are being agreed right now uh you know yeah. the, the interoperability i believe was the the phrase yeah. that uh, uh manuel marsilio was 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 thought was very key so all of these uh chips uh beacons whatever that are on lampposts that are on animals that are on people that are on bikes whatever have all got to talk with each other so it's motordom uh, the current version of Motordom, the current version of, of, of the ICT industry, are now in charge of that. So would it not therefore be 
phenomenally sensible for the bike industry to be at the same table as that, but perhaps pushing a different agenda to the one that maybe Manuel seemed to be pushing in that that was just almost agreeing to everything that the car industry was after. Well, you make perfect sense to me, and and it's because your point of view there is my point of view as well. It does have to leave us asking, why would Manuel have gone along with this to the extent that he did? Now, he he says he has his reasons. I've read them, and I know, know you collected them firsthand. And the reasons are, I mean, the safety reason is, is obviously safety is, is very important and worth doing a lot to achieve. And yet, I agree with you, he appears to be relenting or or sort of signing up with an industry that's hardly uh, uh, the most compatible with a bike-friendly world. Uh, I'm not persuaded that that the technology will make it much more compatible with a bike-friendly world either. And for that reason, I do think it's fair of us to be skeptical that safety is indeed, safety of cyclists is indeed the primary or sole motive here, which uh, in reading your, your article about it, I think that was the only reason offered. It uh, wasn't like we're going to collect data because we want to find out where we need to add more bicycle routes, although you know maybe he wouldn't disagree with that, but that wasn't important enough to uh, get his uh, comment there. And I think joining on to the data collection business, which is now a enormous business, is not in cyclists' interest. It may very well be in bike manufacturers' interest, but I can't see it as being in cyclists' interest just simply because when you're no longer thought of as the customer, then you're no longer always right. You know, the customer is always right. Well, you're not the customer anymore. The data collectors are. So I'm troubled, and because both of us, I th- certainly I and I think you find his statement surprising, we do need to be on guard about what, what the motive is here. Uh, I don't think we should speculate recklessly, but it's consistent with the motive becoming data collection more than cyclist serving. So the way I, I read it from social media, and I, I haven't aggregated every tweet that's come up here, I haven't aggregated every Facebook sure. post here, this is just, just pure gut feeling, is yeah. there are now two camps developing. And I actually straddle uh, both worlds. So I, I've got to say, I've got to have feet in both camps here. Uh, but those, sure. those, those two worlds uh, appear to be uh, cycling user groups, so people who self-identify as cyclists. So we're not talking about you know, the, the generic people on bikes, people who just you know, get on a bike and they, then they'll get in a car on a bus, they don't care, but just cyclists. So cyclist user groups on one side versus the the, the tech heads, as in the, the ICT tech heads and the motor tech heads who are doing this technology and the bike industry who appear to be aligning themselves with them. They are uh, clearly diametrically opposed to each other. So where I stand is I have, you know, I, I represent or I, I write stories on the manufacturers. So I'm clearly uh, aligned with them as a cyclist, uh, very much a self-identified cyclist. I identify also with the user groups. There's going to be a conflict here coming up if the industry groups are wanting something completely different to what the actual users want. And that's not going to be pretty. Sure. I mean, frankly, uh, Carlton, this is exactly what just happened to Facebook. People are on Facebook to get a service that they want. And it's fairly clear that Facebook's interest was not in the service. The service is merely a means to an end. The end was data collection. Um, on the, but I want to be quick to add here that I think that the um, best path forward, if, if it can ever be found, is always complicated. I'm always uh, distrustful of zealous, committed 
commitments to absolute positions, mm. uh, I tend to think that that has that becomes a sort of gratifying thing to feel like you belong to this group of committed people. I've been criticized very harshly by some people who whose values I identify with because of the fact that I won't go along with anything I think of, at least rightly or wrongly, as as dogmatic or as ideological. So um, I'm, I'm saying that just to say I, I am very sympathetic to your position that this is complicated. There's trade-offs in, entailed here. Um, but you're right. There's there's inevitably a clash here, and the clash will tend to be polarizing, tend to drive people who are either indifferent or think of it as complicated into one or the other of of the uh, the camps. I mean, there might be some ways whereby people like Manuel could m- offer a vision of a data-rich, networked, connected future that is also that also rules out some of the grimmer possibilities. So the statements that I read from your piece, there was no sense of caution at all. In any word that I found, everything was go all full speed ahead, network everybody, maybe ultimately with chips embedded in people's bodies, but by any means necessary. To me, that was... I don't know if that was naivete or if there's some sort of strategy that I'm not getting, but that seemed almost calculated to induce the anger that you have picked up in social media. I think he could learn a lot from uh, similar transitions in the past. And here's one that's not in transportation at all, but was handled magnificently. So you've probably heard of Genentech, Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, genetic engineering firm in California. Um, when uh, recombinant DNA was introduced in 1973, it was clearly going to be a huge moneymaker for the business enterprises that got involved, right? And that's, I think, quite analogous to data collection becoming a huge moneymaker, too. But like data collection, genetic engineering had enormous ethical and, and moral and, and, and troubling and divisive possibilities, And yet Genentech, unlike Intel today or some others, uh, Facebook either, Genentech amazingly grasped that it made good business sense and it was good for the future of genetic engineering to actually address every single concern, and they did. So the company founders, before the company was founded, they had this big conference at a resort in California called Asilomar, 1975. It's fairly famous. You may have heard of it. But in any case, they brought together philosophers, religious people, geneticists, other kinds of biologists. The list goes on and on. They had a big conference. They publicly laid out every issue. They came up with uh, procedures that won the agreement of the participants they came up with a list of things they would agree never to do. And the result was Genentech earned the world's trust. And Genentech, ever since then, right up to the present, uh, and I, I'm going to be the first to say I find genetic engineering troubling, but I admire how they did this. They, Because uh, it, it is incredibly medically beneficial, and so it was worth pursuing. And data collection can be incredibly beneficial for e- equitable mobility and everything else we like. So the analogy to me is a very, very close one. The difference is Genent- Genentech got it right, and Intel, Facebook, and others, um, uh, BMW, uh, the list goes on, are, to me, many of them are clumsily making all the mistakes that they could be avoiding it, the an illustration would be if Manuel's statement had been, I think we have to seriously consider networking bikes, connecting them vehicle to vehicle networks, etc. I recognize and care a lot about the fact that there are some very serious implications here. It has, runs the risk of turning 
what we think of now as a cyclist into a data mine that we extract data from. It means uh, it, it ha- and he could come up with a list of concerns. And then the next thing for him to do, I, I would, if he talked to me, I would say, have a conference and invite to this conference philosophers, cyclists, high-tech loving cyclists, the high-end cyclists, the every, everyday workaday cyclist, some academics, uh, some policy people, and sit down and talk about what you think the networked future should be such that all the benefits of the networked future or most of the benefits can be realized and most of the things we fear can be avoided. And if he did that, a lot of that social media hate that he's getting, yeah, a lot of it's going to be there forever no matter what he says, especially now thanks to his own statements. But if he had played that right, at the beginning, I think he would have halved that criticism and to, and that might have made a decisive difference. And we are pretty much sleepwalking into a future that we're not in charge of. Yeah, that's right. We're not even getting a... a nobody's asking us about this. Nobody's saying, yeah. do you want beacons? It's yeah. just people saying, you're getting beacons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it in seems fact, to me. The, the sleepwalking analogy is apt, but I think... The sleepwalker has uh, one or two wakeful people nearby with a gentle hand on the wrist leading that sleepwalker along. Uh, you know that when you, if you like Google autonomous vehicle or, or smart city or something like that, you're going to see endless, very professionally presented depictions of an attractive future that's also a car-dependent future. And you'll see messages like, this is the future that's coming. Are you ready? Okay. Peter, I'd like to end uh, with, with, with one point. And I, I don't want to embarrass you uh, by outing <laughs> you as a, a technophobe without a smartphone, but I'm going to do that. So one of the... Um, <laughs> you're welcome, too. <laughs> yeah. one... I, I, I will quarrel with technophobe, but you're the author. <laughs> okay. One, we can, I, can, I can edit that out. We can put another, a much nicer word in if you want. Uh, one of the, the, the points that I know Manuel was very insistent upon uh, when I... Because it was my word was beacon. He, he didn't like the word beacon. and he, So I've, I've changed it in some parts with the word sensor, which I think he's, he's happy with. And he did want to express that, you know, this is not, you know, a physical beacon a th- thing that you put on a bike. It can just be your smartphone, which is all well and good if everybody in the world had smartphones and, and everybody, of, of course, assumes that everybody does have smartphones and all you've got to do is turn it on and that will save your life because the drivers will know where you are. But you you make the very good point to me, for the very fact it's very difficult to actually contact you at times, is you don't own a smartphone and you're a very smart, pointy-headed person, as you said before, and you don't have a smartphone. So the smartphone ain't going to be a solution here. Well, I mean, there's a, a, a ready-to-hand counter-argument, which is there comes a point when having a smartphone becomes your responsibility as somebody sharing our public space. You know, obviously, I, I would quarrel with that, but I can see the, the argument uh, favor, in favor. For example, I mean, there's all kinds of things that we have now accepted as uh, necessities, and this could just be the latest one, and, and they could say, you know, if you choose not to have it, you're the one who has to live with the consequences. And, and to some extent, I have taken that position. In other words, I'm, I'm no, normally not hard to get because I'm, when I'm at home, I have my landline and so on. But I have taken the view that if getting me is an inconvenience to you, that's on me, you know. And if you don't, if I'm going to, like, not be in some great journalist's article like yours because I couldn't be bothered to have a smartphone. That's a price I'm fine with. And, uh, and, and to me, it's worth it because I do find my life uh, on the whole appears to me to work a little better without being enmeshed in tech to that degree. But I'm getting away from your, your point. Yeah, you're, so, the, so the point, yeah, you're going to have some people excluded I think it's worth adding that that exclusion would go way beyond just a few eccentric types like me 
in most of the countries of the world, right? So if you're in Bolivia, you know, or in, in Bangladesh, yes, even there, smartphone penetration is very high. I think it's majority, perhaps, but it's nowhere near, you know, the high level you would want to have some kind of safety system depending on it. Because let's say you settled for 90%. The 10% who don't have the equipment, it's not like, well, they're just not protected by the new system. No, it's worse than that. They are now endangered by the new system, of course, because the new system assumes you have a phone. So if this, if this plan is actually ill-suited to a majority of the world's geography and population, I think that's reason for a lot of smartphone-owning uh, Global North people to question this move as well, because if the Global North pursues it, then you're setting up a solution to a problem that affects the whole world, but only benefits half of it. And maybe that would be good enough if there weren't an alternative, but there is an alternative. The alternative is choose some lower tech alternatives that will yield the same benefit. I think the, the Netherlands is the best example of this. They had obviously have the alternative of very high tech if they want it. They chose as a country, I, maybe I flatter myself a little bit like I did personally, to say, um, look, we're choosing a low tech way to do this because actually in when push comes to shove if low tech will meet the need there's some inherent advantages in going low tech you know you have a system that's less vulnerable you imagine just to take one of we're running out of time i know but just to take one of a million examples think how much more heavy metals we have to extract as we now put sensors or beacons or whatever you want to call them. To me, beacon is the friendliest thing I've ever heard a transmitter called. But if you put these things in um, not only every car in super abundance, because the cars are going to have hundreds of sensors all over them, but also you start putting them in uh, every bike too, and God knows what else. So if we just pick that one of a dozen different things or a hundred different things we could pick, uh, the heavy metals, both the mining and the disposal of those is horrific in, in, in what it does. And maybe we should be asking ourselves if it's worth it. So a lot of this has come about. And I mean, certainly the, the, the second paragraph of my story was about the, the, the Uber car in Tempe, uh, Arizona, which, yeah. which, which knocked over and killed the homeless 49-year-old woman, uh, yeah. Elaine Hertzberg who was was crossing the freeway which is a well-lit freeway from from what we can see from all of the actual uh, uh evidence not the video because that was just quite a dark video but if you actually look at the street scene it's a well-lit street scene where she was uh, trying to get across the road there so the car absolutely had every reason to be able to see her both physically the driver and one would assume the technology that's bristling on this mm -hmm. car mm -hmm. so that that example uh, is the one that's that's was in the article, and yet uh, we can't use the technology to actually protect people. You've got to use all these beacons as well, which seems to negate the the what the the dream is of autonomous cars, which is meant to be these these cameras. Uh, that's what's the tech. That's the secret source of these things, and it turns right. out to be. Not that at all. You've got to beaconize everybody and everything. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if the conclusion of that review is that's a reason for expecting all bicycles to be equipped with a beacon or even all pedestrians to be equipped f with a beacon, I think that's such a high um, requirement when you add on to the fact that the cars need many thousands of dollars worth of sensors, too. Uh, it's, I think that's enough of a cost to make us ask, is there another way? And I think that there is, I, I'm satisfied that there's another way. Um, in other words, I'm not convinced that autonomous vehicles have a legitimate future as anything more than an adjunct to a more diverse mobility 
system. In other words, they could be fantastic as, you know, maybe connecting people between transit stops or something like that or getting people the last mile. Yes, you make a good point that uh, if, if the pedestrians and the cyclists are vulnerable to those cars, as the Tempe case suggests they may be, that that might become grounds for saying even in that limited de- deployment scenario for AVs that people and, and uh, cyclists ought to have uh, transmitters on them. Um, I'm not sure it does mean that because actually in that subordinate adjunct role, uh, autonomous vehicles could afford to have an offsetting um, compensating quantity of sensors. In other words, if uh, autonomous vehicles are serving 10% of travel needs or 5% of travel needs and are supplied as a service by a private company or a state uh, enterprise, then that would be a small enough number to make the expense of decking these things out with really exceptional sensing abilities, it might actually be cost-effective at that point. But what we're looking at instead, or what's being shown to us instead, is a future where everybody's in their own autonomous vehicle, or they're perhaps shared, but they're still prevalent, still accounting for 80 to 90% of trips or something like that. And in that future, I have to agree, you have to have cars that are super decked out and to keep that decking out limit feasible, you're going to have to deck out probably pedestrians and cyclists too. And at which point, I don't think that's making the case for equipping pedestrians and cyclists. That's making the case for questioning mm. the persistence of car domination in an AV future. Thanks to Peter Norton there. On the next Beacon Gate episode, I'll have interviews with, among others, Lloyd Alter of Treehugger, Casper Hughes of Stop Killing Cyclists and a bunch of other fine folks. As hopefully today's episode and the one that follows shows, this is an incredibly important subject and one that, if we let it, will likely get decided upon behind closed doors by technocrats. Get out there and ride.